three verses, but I get lost in it. Uh, today, we are starting part two of our summer Bible study. You'd think that's kind of strange, Bible study at church, right? But we have to announce it. Uh, I'm not going to talk like this the whole time. I'm just trying to make this the right height. It's built for short people right now. Here we go. What are you laughing at, Steve? Okay. How many of you know the story of Jonah? Yes. Jonah and the... All right. Therein lies the problem. How many of you have read thoroughly the story of Jonah? A little bit less. I'll give you a first clue. Jonah, it's not about a fish. It's not about the guy in the fish. It's not about the fish puking on the beach, which sounds disgusting, especially if you were being puked. It's not about anything with the fish. If the whole story was about a guy and a fish, then what's the point? There's got to be more to the story than Jonah and the big fish. In fact, when you read it, because this is your challenge from here on, read the story of Jonah. Uh, The fish only appears in two verses. So if the story was really about the dude in the bottom of the fish or the whale... Uh, Or is it like Pinocchio, Moby Dick, and uh, Finding Nemo? They all have to do with the whale. If it was about that, then what's the point of the story? The story goes way deeper than just the fish. Uh, It's not the point of the book. If the whole point of Scripture is to point to and reveal the character of God, show us Jesus, and, and show us what God is up to in the world, then we come to the book of Jonah, and we have to ask that same question. How does the book of Jonah show us God, reveal Jesus, and tell us what God is up to in the world, and it doesn't end in the belly of the whale? And so we have to go back to it, because when you're studying scripture, those are the questions that you want to ask. And you go back to it and say, okay, where did I get off the highway here? How does this book of Jonah show me all three of those things? Jonah, my son, loves it. In fact, he got so excited with it that it's the fan, Stephen, I'll I'll kill it. got so excited about the story in his little children's book Bible that he went to reach for it and he ripped the page out and then he was devastated. And then daddy fixes everything apparently and I had to scotch tape it back in. It's a children's story. Children love it. But to get what's actually going on, most children and most adults simply skip past it. It is one of the most brilliantly told stories in all of scripture. It's only two pages long in some of your small print Bibles. With me, it's three because I have really big print. Uh, But it's one of the most impactful stories that you'll ever come across. Jonah represents the people of God through whom God wants to do his work in the world. However, when you look at the story of Jonah, Jonah's a jerk. That's the Hebrew for it. He's a jerk. He runs, he lies, he, he, he does everything opposite. And yet, by holding him up as an example, we look and see uh, the, what the real punchline is for the story. The story is not really about Jonah either. The story is about us. And the story is wrapped in a bunch of 800 BC humor, which many of us weren't around to get. And so we have to really dig deep and go, how is this funny? Because the story was meant to be laughed at. It is full of sarcasm, which I'm an expert in. It's full of wit, which I'm okay at. Uh, and it's full of satire. And I like satire too. And so it, this book is a comedy. But when we read it, we come to it and think, Bible can't be funny. 
So we read it very seriously and wooden, and we go right over it, and probably because we don't get the jokes. It's like us watching a comedian from the 1920s. Very hard for us to get. But Jonah is written as a comedy, and all of it isn't aimed at Jonah, it's aimed at us. When you get into the story, when you get there, you realize that this isn't about God's people, it's about the people who are reading this, because you're going, oh, that Jonah, he's such a jerk. Oh, wait. I'm a jerk. And we start to see ourselves in the text in that way. This is what Jonah's about. And one of the things that we have to do uh, to, to look at it, we need to establish some signposts. So today, as we kick off these next couple weeks in Jonah, I want to give you three signposts uh, that'll help us through the study. I want us to look at today, we're going to look at context, we're going to look at call, and we're going to look at response. Got it? Context, call, and response. The first line of the book is Jonah 1.1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. That's supposed to be funny. Trust me. Jonah. His name means faithful little dove. Amittai. His dad. Faithful one. So combine it. Jonah is the faithful, faithful little dove. This is who Jonah is. Do you know the rest of the story? Doesn't seem to match up. So the first line of it is a clue. There's also a line in this. It's a prophetic book. This book is about prophecy. Jonah is a prophet. When we say prophet, it's not always uh, like Nostradamus saying on this date, this is going to happen. That's not what prophecy always is. Prophecy is sharing something on God's behalf. Jonah is told to go somewhere and share something on God's behalf. This book isn't like other prophetic books. When you go to... Uh, Flip back a page to Obadiah. The first line of Obadiah, the first line of every prophet, I need to find it first. Uh, The first line of it is, the word of the Lord came to fill in name of the prophet, and then what follows is pages and pages and pages of that prophet's poems and prophetic visions and everything else. Here, that's not what goes on. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. God's scripture, and we need this is important to notice, God's scripture comes in a bunch of different ways. Sometimes it's speaking directly through the prophet. Sometimes it's speaking to us and giving the prophet as an example. God's word says such and such to so and so through this person. But the book of Jonah is God's word to his people through the story of a prophet. So if you want to hear God's word, we need to read this and then reread it and then meditate it and think about the message of the story. It's not about a fish. It's about a prophet, it's about us, but what kind of story is it? These are questions that whenever you look at scripture, you have to figure out what kind of story you're reading. Why? How many of you read fiction? It's not a trick question. You read fiction. Do you read fiction the same way as you read a biography? No. So when we come to a prophetic book and we come to a book about Jonah, we need to set some ground rules. This book is different than other prophetic books. Where does it fit? The Bible has a whole bunch of different genres. There's poetry, prophecy, there's history, there's writings, there's narrative, and there's probably a bunch of us, a bunch of others that I missed. So when we come to Jonah, we need to get the ground rules of what kind of story this is, what kind of writing this is. This is a, it's a funny story, it's a playful story, it's a narrative, but when the, so when we figure out what it's coming to, then we ask a question, is this a real story? It's a playful story about a real man. 
Jonah is mentioned other places in Scripture. We'll get to this part. 2 Kings is the first time we are introduced to Jonah. Jonah is also mentioned by Jesus a number of a couple times. And so Jonah's a real dude in, in Scripture. One, uh, but here's where Jonah's different. Other than Jonah and his dad, there is no other name mentioned in the entire book. You get Jonah and Amittai. There's the king of Nineveh. He's given a title. The king of Nineveh is the king of Assyria. That's the capital of Assyria. He's called the king of Nineveh. Nineveh was, Assyria was a superpower. Usually you know the names of the rulers of various superpowers, right? Here, didn't even bother to name it. Other, other prophets will name, and it was the rule of Jeroboam, or it was the rule of Ahab, or something, just to give you a timestamp in a neighborhood to where this was sitting. This one doesn't give us anything. Jonah, Amittai, king of Nebuchadnezzar, other places will give you little tiny dates that you can scratch the surface and get to. Jonah doesn't give us any dates. We can guess from other times of that Second Kings passage that Jonah was around end of 700 or end of 800 700 BC time. So we have that window, but that's all we get from this. Jonah. One author points this out. Jonah, as you're reading it, you have to look at it as if you were looking at a Saturday Night Live sketch. Okay, seriously. This, it's, it's satire. Saturday Night Live, some of us find it funny, right? It used to be funny. It always used to be funny. But Saturday Night Live has these characters, and they take these characters, and they go to the extreme of, of their personality traits. When they make fun of a popular person, it's either their accent's wacko, and they just amplify it, and this is what Jonah does. He takes the extremes. It's always big. It's always huge. In fact, the word big and great in Hebrew is the Hebrew word gadol, and it's mentioned 15 times in this passage. It's exaggerating things. It's a big fish. It's a great city. It's, it's Jonah has huge mood swings. There is this huge gap of everything is enormous. Why? Because it's meant to be funny. It's a funny book that tells us about ourselves. There's a whole bunch of things that don't make sense. For instance, the, the faithful dove is the one who runs away from God. He's the jerk of the story. At the end of the story, the story ends on a cliffhanger. He's sitting under a fig tree, mad at God for God being merciful. Does this sound like a man of God? No. However, he's the good guy. The bad guys, or who we would think are the bad guys, are the people of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, and what do they do? Repent. So the good guy does the bad thing and the bad people do the good thing and even at the end of chapter 3, the cows repent. And so it's a book where you're like, what on earth is going on? No one is behaving the way they should. It's also kind of like a comic book because everything is out of proportion. And this was intentional. We're supposed to look at Jonah as the original readers might have and gone, this dude is stupid. This guy just can't, doesn't get it. And, w- and then when we get down to the end of it, we're like, this guy's so dumb. So am I. Because what it does is it, it, it lulls you and brings you into its story through humor. I like stand-up comedy. Anyone else with me? The best stand-up comedians are the ones who will bring you in and start making fun of society. And you're like, yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at the end, this is a new trend with stand-up comedy. they got to be like poignant and meaningful. They'll come back and go, you're it. This is what you're doing. 
How many of you ever watched Seinfeld? And Seinfeld gets, Seinfeld for the younger folks was a TV show that still is one of the best TV shows ever. Uh, but he, they would do these wacky things in Seinfeld's pickiness and you're laughing at him because of man hands and her hands are too big and there's always an excuse with Jerry, right? And then you go, oh, there's always an excuse. Maybe you haven't gotten this far, but like, oh, there's always an excuse with me too. It shows you something about yourself. Jonah does the same thing. He's shining a light on God's people and giving them some insight to the tendencies that each of them have and possibly tendencies that they've neglected to deal with. This is the playing field we're dealing with with Jonah. This is how we look at it. The second signpost is that there's a call. So the first line's a joke. Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. His name means this. In 2 Kings 14, this is why this would have been funny. 2 Kings 14, here's what happens. Jeroboam II was the king. That was his title, Jeroboam II. He's the second Jeroboam. Jeroboam II was a horrible, horrible king. It says in the text in 2 Kings, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's not a good description to have of you. Jeroboam II rebuilt a whole bunch of temples around his area of the kingdom, and then he put golden calves in them to sort of mock God. And this was what Jeroboam, he did a bunch of other things, but this was Jeroboam too. Now, in 2 Kings, Jonah comes to the side of Jeroboam too and offers him a prophecy in his favor. He says, you're going to retake the lands that were taken from you and you're going to reunite those lands. It's a good thing. So when the first hearers read this and they go, Jonah, isn't he the guy who prophesied in favor of a wicked king? (laughs) You're going to tell me, oh, this is going to be rich. Let's listen to this one. And so Jonah, the first time we see him, the faithful pure dove is now prophesying in favor of a national uh, embarrassment. He's saying that this wicked king is going to prosper. If you look in Amos 7, uh, this same prophecy is reversed. And uh, it says that Assyria, Nineveh, it was going to come back and take the land. These are all things that shape what Jonah's called to do. Here is his call. Go to the great city, there's that Gadol word again, the great city, and speak against it because its wickedness has come up before me. This is the call. Nineveh, capital city. It was extremely violent place. The Assyrians, if you were being taken over by the Assyrians, it was not a good time for you. They would take the leaders of their captive nations, this is gross, they would skin them alive, and then the people who were left, they would deport them back to Assyria. This is what they did. And so Jonah's being said, go to them. God is calling the faithful dove to bring a good message to wicked people. Anyone have a guess, if this is all you knew, how was this going to go? Not well. Verse 3, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for, if your English translation says that port, in Hebrew it'll say Tarshish again, that's important, hang on. After paying the fare, so he chartered this boat, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish, to flee from the Lord. Now in here is a bunch of more winks and nods and the author's going, do you get it? Do you see what I'm doing? He's jabbing you in the side. He, the faithful dove ran away. Not only did he run away, but he ran 
away to some place where we need to examine. There's a rule in Bible study. If it bears repeating, it bears studying. In those lines, Tarshish is named three times. Three times in one verse. If you're looking at it, you go, why? What is it about Tarshish? The other phrase that goes alongside with Tarshish is away from the presence of the Lord. So you have Tarshish three times. How is Tarshish described? A place where the presence of the Lord is not. This is where the narrator wants us to grab a hold of something. He's tying the presence of the Lord right together with Tarshish. It tells us that in Jonah's mind, here's what he's thinking. There is a place where he could go where God is not. There's a place for Jonah to go where God is not. Tarshish is a place where you want, when you want to get away from the presence of the Lord, you can go there. And apparently, that's the funny thing for these people too. They know that the presence of the Lord is everywhere. So he's going to go to Tarshish? That's ridiculous. That's what you're supposed to say when you read this. That's ridiculous. Let me show you a map. That should be on there. Jonah's in Joppa. (laughs) He's told to go to Nineveh. It's an easy trip. Instead, he hops on a boat and goes to Tarshish. Here's the other funny thing about Tarshish. Tarshish was a wonderful seaport village with a beach and everything. It was beautiful. So he's going to Tarshish, a beautiful place. Think Maui, Hawaii, someplace nice. Some people just got back, jerks. Uh, this, this nice and beautiful place, or wherever that place is, Golden Gardens at sunset, this gorgeous place. He's going there. Why? To get away from the presence of the Lord. This is the part where you go, Jonah, you're not just stupid, you're an idiot. Because, let's ask you this, when you want to get away from the presence of the Lord, how many of you go hiking? No. If you want to get away from the presence of, I don't go hiking either. How, if you want to be present with the Lord, how many of you go to the most beautiful place in the world? No. Jonah is going to one of the most beautiful places in that world in order that he might bask in the beauty of God's absence. It makes zero sense, but this is what Jonah is doing. But the truth is also on the flip side. If he's going to a place of beauty to get away from God's presence, that means that Nineveh, the place where they skin people alive, has God's presence. Do you see the balance, the the big swing that's happening? If Nineveh is a place of darkness and evil, Nineveh is also a place where God's presence is on full display. Is it starting to make sense what the author might be doing here? It's fascinating because in the narrative, we're told if we want to flee from God, we go to a place of beauty. And if you want to be present with God, you head to Vegas or Tacoma or whatever city is <laughs> Portland, someplace. Whatever city is awful to you, that's where you're supposed to go. And this is where we find out that Jonah was onto something. He tells us, and he knows something that's true that most of us often forget and is one of the major points of this story. It's not about a fish. 
If you want to find God in one place, you'll find him in the dark, shadowy, back room corners of the world and your soul. The place where you think God is absent is probably where God is most present. The parts of yourself that you repress, the parts of yourself that you deny, the parts of yourself that you disown, the places where you're frightened, those dark places behind that thick door that you don't want anyone to find out, not even your spouse, not even your therapist, not even your best friend. Those places, the places we like to keep hidden because we're guilty, because we're shameful, the places of sickness is also the place where the creator of the universe is most comfortable. This is what Jonah shows us. God, in those places of our embarrassment, is completely unfazed. He's not surprised. He's not angry. I love awkward moments. Some people say I love to create them. I love to be around them when they happen because I don't, I hardly feel awkward. I don't get embarrassed easily. But when other people are feeling awkward, I kind of chuckle because it's, it's funny, right? It's awkward. And so, but this awkward place, this place where we want to avoid, the place where we don't want to bring up because it's awkward, God doesn't know that feeling of awkwardness. He's not sitting in the back corner of your soul going, well, you found me, this is awkward. No, he doesn't get the feeling. God is completely at home in the most dark and most shameful and evil places. And in order for us to understand this book and understand the person of God, we have to grab onto this. And once you grab onto that truth that God does not feel awkward in your most awkward places, you'll understand the peace that comes from the presence of God. And you'll understand that our call is the same call as Jonah to go to the places, not only the places of this world, but the places of your inner life, go to those places that you would rather avoid. Jonah has a context, Jonah has a call, and now we get to the part that we all are familiar with, Jonah's response. Jonah ran, he ran away, because here's the reality, and we would run away too, because the reality is this, most of us find the invitation to the dark places of the world uh, very unwelcoming. We would rather go to Hawaii than name your city, Tacoma. We would rather go to a place of comfort than we would rather go to a place that has an aroma. We would rather take, uh, we, we like pleasure more than we like pain, and that's a good thing. Pleasure is good. Jesus came that we might find peace and joy. Uh, Jesus came to offer light in a dark world. Jesus came to give us the, the peace and joy that surpasses understanding. But here's the challenge. Because we would rather focus on the good things and ignore all of the bad and hard things. We prefer pleasure over pain. One of the things that we've learned to settle with is the surface, ple- the surface type of pleasure rather than the ocean deep joy. We've learned to settle for the cliche of happiness instead of the immovable, indestructible joy that God gives us. And the reason we've settled for the surfacey stuff instead of the deep stuff, is because you and I don't understand the difference between them. We think the surfacey stuff is all there is. It's, it, it's vast. It's surface joy. It's surface pleasure. But the problem with the surfacey stuff is it's always tied to events in your life. You got a new job. Joy. You got married. All right. Joy. Happiness. Way to go. Uh, you got a good diagnosis. All right. You had a baby. Great. All of these things, when we tie into the circumstances in our life, 
all we have is happiness and we think that's it. This is all we can do. Those are, but those are good things. Those are great things. However, they're always tied to the circumstance of your life. Because what happens when you lose the job? No more joy. What happens when the baby doesn't get any sleep? No more sleep. No more joy. Cranky mom and dad. What happens when marriage gets hard? What happens when the good diagnosis turns to a bad diagnosis? We've learned to, that everything in our lives need to, needs to be ordered correctly in order to have joy. And so we always tie it to the surface. But that kind of joy vanishes very quickly. Ecclesiastes says that joy, it's a vapor. It comes quick, it leaves even quicker. And if you are older than a three-year-old, you know that everything changes all of the time. Even your circumstances. Instead, God offers us a joy that is utterly independent of our circumstances. It's immovable. It's unchanging. It's indestructible. It's always available. But most of us, including me, sometimes don't have any clue on how to access it. Because we're so stuck in the surface that we're afraid to go into the depths where we will find this joy. Darkness and those hard places in our life become an integral, vital part in finding joy. Without them, it's like turning on a high beam light in the middle of the daytime. You don't even see a difference, right? In the middle of the day, we're, we're, we're so used to surfacing, we're so used to seeing no difference that if we turn on a flashlight or, or a floodlight in the middle of the afternoon, you won't see the light turn on. The other day, most of you know that our, our cars got broken into or my car got broken into in our driveway about a month back. And so Carrie and I decided that we wanted to be more secure in our house. And so what's more secure than I see these things for ring cameras all over. I found one on Prime Day and I put a ring camera floodlight on the front of our house that shoots down to our car. I figure if someone's going to take my stuff out of my car and, and pry my door open, I'm going to give them a nice selfie. And so this was my motivation. And so I'm wiring this thing, which is in itself a joke because I'm not very wiry thingy. And so I'm up there on a ladder trying not to fall. And I wire this thing up and I follow the instructions. I plug it in. I turn the light on. I look at it and go, well, that light sucks. I can't even see it. It's, not even, it's barely even doing anything. And then I went, it's 2 p.m. Of course it's not doing anything. And so before I took it down and, and sent it back, I decided I was going to give it a night. And that night after the sun went down, I, I, I got on my phone and I turned the light on and I looked outside. And in the middle of the darkness, this light illuminated my entire yard and some of my neighbor's yard. They're going to be very upset with me. And this is with a difference, though. If it wasn't for that darkness, would I ever know the power of those two floodlights? No. It's the same thing with our joy. If we don't know the darkness, we can't find the true joy. The deep joy that we are all searching for is, all, is not, not found in the absence of pain. That's surface joy. The joy that we are all searching for is a joy that shines brightest in the middle of pain. That floodlight does no good right now. But when it's dark that floodlight's going to do amazing things. It even scares the raccoons when they walk across my yard. That floodlight lights up my entire yard. The same is true with joy. 
that lights up the darkest places of our souls. Not in the absence of darkness, but right smack dab in the middle of darkness. A few weeks ago, uh, Carrie and I took the boys to a park, and as we were walking around the park, I noticed they had a tire swing. And I grew up with tire swings. They're awesome. And so I, I say to Judah, hey, bud, you got to check this out. And he looks at it and goes, no. I'm like, no, there's some things that dads go, you're doing this. And so I pick him up. I put him on there. Carrie, he's fine. Yes, he's protesting, but he's going to love it. And I put him on there, and I say, hold on tight. Put your feet here. And I start pushing him back and forth. And then he's like, okay, I'm not going to die. He did ask for his helmet, his bike helmet. So I put it. <laughs> I put him on there. I said, here's your helmet. Not going to do anything. But, so I start pushing him. And up after about two or three minutes, he starts like, hey, this is fun. There's a, there's a little smile growing. And then I keep pushing him. And then I start pushing him more. And I get him going around like this. And he's still like, I don't, I, this is okay. And then as he gets used to it and, and he starts to smile, I twist it. And he starts spinning around in circles. And yeah, I'm waiting for him to puke, right? And, uh, and he's, all of a sudden, he's, he lets his head back and goes, faster! And he's loving it, and he's going around in circles, and he's having a great time, and, and, and he's putting his head back. But here's the thing. Here, at the end of it, he had this immense joy. Why? Because he was going fast, and he was holding on, but he was smiling. Would he have known that joy that deep joy, if there wasn't that sense of fear before it. You see what I mean? The things that often we think are going to bring us pain and peril are often the sources of our greatest joy. You can't know the brightness of the day until you've gone through the darkest of the night. Judah was terrified. But pretty soon, next time we go to that park, that's the first thing he's going to go after. I want to find that tire swing. We want to find joy. And in the book of Jonah, we're invited to take a journey and watch this man journey into the inner life where he's forced to come face to face with the darknesses of his own heart in order that he find the joy that we're looking for. It's not an invitation to feel pain for the sake of pain. Pain will find you. It's like vegetables. They always find you. You can avoid vegetables your entire life, but there's going to be a vegetable on your plate and you're going to have to decide not to eat it. This is like pain. Don't go looking for it. Pain will find you. It always does. But in the middle of the pain, we'll find the home of the infinitely loving and gracious God. And we'll see his love and light in that place. We find our way into the home of God through the pain in our lives. And when we do, the light shines and exposes the darkness in beautiful and brilliant ways. So, if you're looking to experience God's presence, I want to suggest two things for you, especially as we continue through this book of Jonah. The first question is, what is your Tarshish? What is your symbol of escape? When you don't want to feel, what is it that you run to? What's your reject button to get away from the darkness? We all have them. Is it exercising? Is it sex? Is it porn? Is it travel? Is it spending? Is it shopping? Is it religion? Is it book? Is it music? What is it? Where do you go when you have that feeling and you, run a, you want to run away? And I notice some of them are good. 
Travel's good. Relationships are good. Music is good. Exercise is too good. Some of them are not bad things. Some of them are good. Tarshish was a beautiful, good place. But it was being used for a bad reason. The question to ask yourself today is, are you using your Tarshish to escape uh, your reality or are you using it to bring you back into an ultimate reality? It all depends how it's used. It all points back to something. The second question, are you aware of your Nineveh? The Nineveh of your heart, the place of darkness, the darkness of sin, something you're ashamed about, the place of grief, something you've lost, something you're losing. Are you aware of this place? And are you willing to open the door to it? Are you willing to name it? And here's the deal. The point isn't to get in there and fix it. It's not to open the door so you can start doing work. Jonah was sent to Nineveh, and as we'll see, he wasn't sent to fix everything. He was just sent there to name them. Jonah gave the most weak sermon ever. Five words was all it was. He didn't even really go after it. And he just kind of moped around the city. It took him three days to walk a city that took seven miles wide. It took him three days. He wasn't really trying hard. He didn't, have to, he didn't have to fix it. All he had to do was go name what was happening. And so in the middle of your Nineveh, it's not that you open this door and say, okay, I have to fix it. The first step for you is to simply open the door and allow the light to touch it. Name it. Bring it out. The task is to name it, to bring awareness, to welcome it. And when we do, when we allow it to surface, it's exposed to what God has for us. And in his light, he will shine on it and he'll give us the radiant light, love, and joy which we are looking for. And we'll find is, and what we'll find is this, that when we go to Nineveh, we'll be going to a place where God dwells most comfortably. Then you'll find this. There's no place where God doesn't dwell. Paradise or darkness. These things aren't separate. You can't separate Tarshish from Nineveh because both of them need to be redeemed. They become fleeting joy that activates greater joy and it reminds us of our deepest joy. Two things that separate us are actually very, very close together. And as we study Jonah, I pray this. I pray that you acknowledge your Tarshish and your escape methods and make your journey to Nineveh. Make your place, make your journey to the place of darkness where you find God dwelling. There you will experience a joy that is boundless. There you will experience a joy that is effortless and endless and always available. It's all around us. It liberates us and it brings us peace which gives us joy. It's not about a fish. It's about your heart and how God is working in the middle of it. And he invites you to go to the depths with him so you may find him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you give us this invitation. That in this place you say, I'm I'm here. I want you to come to the depths of the darkest places because I I want to meet you here in the place that gives you most sadness. I want to turn that place to joy. I want to resurrect it. This is what you tell us. But God, it's very scary. We think there's monsters, we think there's skeletons that we don't want to see, and we're embarrassed to show you, but you say, I'm coming, and I'm there, and I'm comfortable. 
Lord, may we find you in these places. May you give us courage to step into these places. May you give us the courage to name them. May you give us the courage to not try and fix them immediately, but show them to you and allow you to do the work. God, many of us are carried around hurts and pains from the past, from the future, from the present. Lord, we ask that you turn those ashes into something that's beautiful. Because that's what you do. You come after us. You pursue us. Even the uh, places we don't want you to know about. In you we find joy. May your joy be abundant today. In Jesus' name.